This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, well, now we're talking about you have to wait for another 30 days. This was a story we dug into yesterday, the steel and aluminum tariffs being watched very closely by the European Union, Mexico and Canada. Deadline at midnight last night now extended for another 30 days. Let's get an update on this story. Caitlin Weber is government analyst, U.S. trade policy with our Bloomberg Intelligence Group, our in-house group of analysts and researchers. And she joins us uh, from our D.C. Bureau. Caitlin, so TikTok, the deadline came and went, and now we have another extension. Another 30 days. Um, President Trump has said he's he's not likely to to extend this deadline again. We'll have to see about that, particularly if they're making progress on some of these other trade issues that could even lump in sort of larger issues like the Iran deal in North Korea. Um, but for, yeah, at, at this point, we're again at sort of wait and see. There's not a lot of... Um, not a lot of transparency about this, really, the, the status of these negotiations right? Um, and whether or not to be done in that time period. Why don't we know much about the negotiations? Just kind of quiet, uh, the White House kind of playing it close to its vest? Yeah, I mean, the White House will say not, they don't want to negotiate in public. That would sort of undermine their position. Kind of funny um, from a president who uses Twitter as much as he does, but but we'll put that aside. Very discreet about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting, though. Okay, so... The EU, Mexico, and Canada on pins for another 30 days. They did reach some deals, though, with some countries, correct? Right. Um, so Argentina, Brazil, Australia, they were given um, sort of an indefinite extension or exemption. Um, they're not going to face, be facing this uh, 30-day deadline yet again because the administration said that those deals were actually further along than with these other major suppliers. And actually, just a few minutes ago, there was news across Bloomberg that we the, the deal with Argentina was reached and Argentina agreed to limit their exports um, to – uh, you know, just about historic levels over the last couple of years. Um, but we still don't know what's going to happen with, with Brazil and Australia at this point. What's so. inter- which is interesting is it gives the White House some breathing room at this point, right? There's so much we know going on. There's these trade negotiations. We're going to see what happens with North Korea, uh, Iran and its nuclear disarmament. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, but it does give the White House some time to kind of kick things around a little bit more. Right. Also, China. Yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah. I forgot about that China. one. <laughs> there's, there's a lot going on. Well, um, talk, yes. talk to us a little bit about, though, the European Commission, the European Union, because they came out. I mean, they've got to be kind of just tired of this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they certainly want more certainty for their exporters, because even though these haven't technically taken effect, they still affect um, you know, affect trade flows and affect prices. Um, yeah, so absolutely, they are looking to, you know, they want to be exempt overall. It's it's unclear what you know how how you know the administration is now saying that instead of tariffs, we'll be okay with quotas. It's un, it's unclear of how kind of restrictive the EU yeah. is going to be. Um, South Korea agreed to a seventy percent tariff, so cutting back their imports, you know, by thirty percent. Australia agreed to keep, or excuse me, Argentina agreed to keep those sort of in line. 
it's it's unclear what the EU is going to be in in the mood for negotiating for. Yeah, it's kind of interesting too. If you look at um, the European Commission, they came out and said the U.S. decision prolongs market uncertainty, which is already affecting business decisions. Right? We know that businesses, CEOs, uh, the C-suite um, does not like uncertainty. It's hard for them to decide what to do. The EU going on further, or the European Commission going on further to say the EU should be fully and permanently exempted from these measures as they cannot be justified on the grounds of national security. So, you know, they're coming out pretty strong, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And and U.S. downstream groups are, as well, are very critical of this. You know, automakers and brewers and other other uh, industries in the food service sector, uh, among many others, are saying this is already affecting us now. We need, you know, we need certainty. We need to know we're, we're having to put these decisions on hold. If we have a big investment um, over the next couple of months, you know, we we are going to be, you know, rethinking that because we could have these double-digit tariffs to contend with. Now, the EU has come out and said that the U.S. tariffs violate international trading rules. Are they right? That's hard to say. I okay. think, you know, because these these tariffs based on national security are so rare, they haven't really been tested before the WTO. A lot of countries have been really loath to impose tariffs on the basis of national security because it's, it's seen as such a slippery slope. I think it's probably, uh, you know, a good thought that they would be, you know, they could be challenged at the WTO. But the thing about that is it takes time, at least a year, and there's no sort of, like, injunction while that challenge is going on. So they're, they're right about yeah. That it likely is, you know, is a viable challenge, but it's just it takes time to get there. And as you as you kind of kidded me as I gave the laundry list of all the things that the administration is dealing with and that by kind of extending this deadline, it gives them some more time. Of course, China and the Chinese trade talks. Right. We've got a delegation heading to China uh, to begin talks uh, on the trade deficit that uh, the United States has with that country. So that's, of course, looming in the background and what what might happen there. Right. And I think the administration is trying to set expectations a little bit lower that, you know, this week they're not going to 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 uh, sort of fix the entire complicated trade relationship between the U.S. and China. They're not going to, you know, come out and say, OK, we have a deal. Those $150 billion in tariffs, you know, never mind about that. We figured out the IP situation. Um, they have a, a lot to talk about. And I think that that will probably go on and on. You know, those those uh, Chinese tariffs that um, Trump talked about uh, right. a few weeks ago, those actually don't have to be imposed until the fourth quarter. So they have they have they have some time there. <sighs> Nothing like a moving though target <laughs> when it comes to uh, trade talks. Caitlin Weber, good stuff. Government analyst, U.S. trade policy with our Bloomberg Intelligence Group. She's joining us uh, from our D.C. Bureau. Luck be a lady. So the global gambling market forecast to grow at a compound annual growth rate of about 8.5% over the next four years, adding to the offerings Empire Resorts. Ryan Eller is with us. He's president and CEO at Empire Resorts, owner of the Monticello Casino and Raceway, getting ready for the grand opening of Resorts World. Catskills already open, though, right? That's right. Uh, opened uh, initially February 8th, but we've just recently completed uh, the majority of our construction on the $900 million uh, casino project. So we're celebrating our grand opening. Uh, this May. That's pretty exciting. You've got a big headliner, right, Seinfeld, I think? That's right. May 12th, <laughs> Seinfeld's uh, ushering in the grand opening. Tell me about $900 million, big investment. Uh, I'm just curious, how quickly do you get that back? 
uh, as quickly as possible. Well, right? that's so. always the goal. But I'm just, <laughs> it, I, I'm curious about the gambling industry. Right. It, it certainly, it's a, it's a large capital investment, right? And it's something that obviously takes uh, some time to earn back that level of investment. Uh, but uh, gaming is unique, right? So it's a it's a cash flow positive and somewhat cash rich. Uh, uh, industry uh, when it's appropriately sized to the market opportunity. And right, uh, this happens to be the fourth, final, and largest of the commercial casinos in New York State and right. the closest to New York City. And so, as a consequence, it's one of those not only promising standalone properties, but it also has a great deal of value in establishing this resorts world integrated brand in the United States, of which we get to usher it in. So, tell me a little bit, though, about competition, because we, we talk on an awful lot here uh, at Bloomberg about the increase in online gaming. And it looks like, you know, we'll get a Supreme Court decision, I guess, we expect maybe by the end of the term, you know, this year about whether or not we can see it spread across the country. What might that do to your business outlook? Well, um, our business outlook would certainly benefit from that. Now, why? uh, well, the uh, specific – the Supreme Court decision that you're referring to uh, has to do with sports betting. Sports betting originally contemplated in the constitutional amendment enacted by New York State, uh, which allows us to operate a commercial casino, uh, does also uh, allow the commercial casino licensees, of which we are one, right. uh, to operate a sports book if that is enabled through the Supreme Court decision. Uh, but ultimately, we would expect that there to be further legislation uh, to really scope out what that opportunity is in New New York State. Meaning it's going to take some time? or I think it'll take a little bit of time to implement, but not much time. I think there's going to be a lot of interest in New York specifically uh, to ensure that New York isn't left by the wayside while other states act immediately if there's a favorable Supreme Court decision. Ryan, who do you see as kind of your typical customer? Because there is competition, I feel like, in terms of gaming within uh, this area. Ah, Well, that's that's a good question. Uh, To go back to what the concept is behind this investment, and why it it really cost over $900 million to bring it to fruition is it's an integrated resort, which means that there's a a recognition that this northeastern gaming market is a competitive marketplace. And uh, as a result, uh, what this integrated resort concept is, it's supposed to bring about a a kind of coalesce some of the best-in-class, world-class entertainment and gaming experiences all in one location. And that means that it will be uniquely friendly to accommodate, uh, let's say, a foreign international traveler, Right, as well as a domestic Asian customer that's based out of New York, as well as a domestic customer that might want to go visit an indoor family water park, as well as someone that might want to go and visit our casino floor for slot machines. Is it going to be a mixture of all of those? Or it is a mixture curious, of everything. It's yes. curious when you say kind of an Asian tourist, because I'm curious if you're working with kind of tourism operators to kind of bus them in. That's right. Uh, we have uh, tour- those tourist routes, right, bus routes and locations specifically geared towards accommodating that Asian tourist, as well as uh, in the greater New York City and surrounding region, just to make it more convenient for people to get there. I'm curious, too, uh, just taking a look at your stock price. It's taken quite a hit. It's down about 40% since early February. Mm -hmm. Um, What are you hearing from the investment community and analyst community about what they want to see from you? Uh, That's also an interesting question. Our stock is uh, held by a single shareholder for the vast majority of it. And as a consequence, uh, it is, uh, it's not the most liquid stock that's out there. But one of the advantages that that provides is it provides a long horizon for investment goals because there's a strategic view from that single shareholder. It's highly concentrated. Uh, that individual is uh, KT Lim, a Malaysian billionaire, that takes a very long
long-term view in investments. And uh, the long-term view in this case is to create an integrated resort that's a Resorts World branded property in this key gateway market and city of, of New York. And as a result, uh, the ebbs and flows of that stock price over the uh, last couple months is somewhat irrelevant. You don't care. Right. <laughs> Basically. Yes. Um, again, just going back to, like I said, a big investment. So does your one big investor have a lot of patience in terms of seeing this pay off ultimately? Absolutely. It's the ultimate in patience, right? It's, uh, I think perhaps it could be cultural. Either way, he's a visionary uh, that actually believes that he's looking at creating value that spans generations and not just spans months. All right. Well, good to uh, check in with you and good luck. All right, thank the you opening, very much. Grand opening coming. Ryan Eller, uh, Chief Executive Officer, uh, President and Chief Executive Officer of Empire Resorts. Ticker is NYNY. So automakers out with their monthly sales numbers for the month of April. Here to make sense of it all, uh, the highs and lows. Keith Naughton, Bloomberg News auto reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us from our bureau in Detroit. So April, good, bad, or ugly, or what, Keith? Well, it had been going along fine, Carol. Uh, it looked like it was going to be slightly better than we expected. And then Nissan came along and shocked the market with a 28% sales decline that just kind of rained on everyone's parade. Stocks that were up suddenly all pointed down. Um, Nissan apparently decided this was the month they were going to pull back from their reliance on fleet sales and deep discounting. And um, when they did that, suddenly their cars were not selling quite so quickly. What's going on? Michelle Krebs, I love her. She's a senior analyst for uh, Researcher Auto Trader, and she said, our eyes are bugging out here. (laughs) They've been very heavy with rental car sales and rich incentives. It looks like they're pulling back. I would say so. I would say so, too, yeah. And nobody had really seen this coming. I mean, everybody predicted a sales decline for Nissan as they did for everyone because uh, it's a shorter month than uh, the month of April this year was shorter than last year. But not anything like that. That makes a big difference, right, year over year. When you when you pop out two days, it does make a difference. Uh, yeah, it, we uh, we had a pretty strong um, March because it had an extra weekend in there. These things matter, and so yeah, you take a couple of days out of a month, you take a weekend out of a month, and suddenly the numbers don't line up very nicely for, with the previous year. But that was again not the case with Nissan. They had bigger issues than just a, yeah. a calendar issue. Well, talk to us about um, Ford. Ford sales dropped less than expected, right? Uh, we did yes. see some gains in the F Series pickup. Always key to the Ford story. Yeah, that's that's their big money maker. So when when sales of the F series are going up, that that means they're making money. They also are uh, doubling their sales of that new Lincoln Navigator that that analysts say they make more than twenty thousand dollars on each one they sell. Uh, so those are selling for about eighty five grand on average. Um, so that's that's helpful. Uh, on the downside, uh, their SUVs in the middle of this SUV boom are are trending downward because they're all getting long in the tooth. This is part of the reason why Ford is struggling at the moment. And uh, yeah. and then, of course, the cars that they announced last week, the Fusion, the Taurus, all those cars that they are going to discontinue, uh, word is out on that now, and sales are even lower for them. Yeah, but it sounds like, you know, necessary moves. I, I don't know. Sometimes when I used to go to the auto show, you know, Keith, I'd be like, do we need so many different models and stuff? Like, <laughs> I mean, it, right? It, it's like I walk into a, a, a retail store. I'm like, why do I need so many different types of pairs of jeans? I mean, I right. really don't need that much. Edited Same thing for, for the- me, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, is that good that Ford is kind of editing its offerings? Yeah, uh, particularly uh, on the car side. Really, um, 
they've been an also-ran for quite some time. The sedan market is controlled really still by Toyota and Honda with the Camry and the Accord. So why continue to beat your head against the wall as a you know third, fourth, fifth, seventh place player <laughs> yeah. uh, when you can make a ton of dough selling navigators and and yeah. and spend money updating those explorers and escapes that need a redesign so that they sell better? So they're going to put their money where they can make money, and they're going to take money away from the stuff that they were losing it on. What did you make? Uh, I saw this story, this line in the uh, Bloomberg story. It said the only Ford or Lincoln car that U.S. consumers bought more of in April compared to a year ago was the GT, the GT. a four hundred thousand dollar car. Yeah, and there needs to be a really large asterisk next to that because <laughs> they sold 10 of them in the month of April. 10, count to 10. Thank you. <laughs> and last year, they sold two. So that's a 400% increase. But the absolute numbers matter here. Yes, they do. So, yes, $400,000 cars will not uh, make or break Ford Motor Company. It's oh my a vanity God. project. Uh, speaking of uh, doing something different, though, um, GM no longer reporting their monthly sales numbers. Yeah. They have they have gone dark on us, uh, um, you know. And the question now: Will everyone else follow? Um, and nobody's showing any signs that they will today. I asked Ford today: Are you going to follow? They said no. We like the monthly uh, uh, sales reporting and the opportunity to discuss it. Uh, we think that's beneficial. So uh, for now, GM's out there on its own. Um, I think. Um, it's going to be tempting for everybody to move that way. That's what uh, retail sales do now, housing sales, lots of other segments are reporting quarterly. Um, they feel like GM's argument is that there's too much noise in the monthly sales, but yeah. it seems like there could be noise in the quarterly sales as well. I certainly see a lot of noise in quarterly earnings. So, um, you know, it uh, it is something they're, they're trying to move away from. Uh, as, as we wrote yesterday, we doubt very much it'll stop all the shenanigans that have gone on with sales reporting through the years as automakers stuff the sales channels at the end of the reporting period so they can beat the other guy. Yeah, because, you know, you, you know this industry really well. You've been reporting on it for a long time. I mean, are they right that this noise is distracting? I mean, sometimes I do wonder whether we've all become too short-term focused. At the same time, it's a publicly held company, right. and transparency is often a good thing. Well, I think the telling thing is they still are going to report monthly results to the Fed because the Fed uses them to calculate the ah, GDP. Okay. So this is that's not noise. That's an important, serious, yeah. you know, economic indicator. And so I think there is a place for monthly sales. I always think it's better to have more transparency than less. Um, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the industry um, follows them. Hey, listen, there's also, you know, everybody reports on their U.S. sales. You've got all the foreign guys, BMW and so on and so forth. Forth. What else do you think is interesting and you think investors might uh, care about uh, in this latest reporting season? Well, I mean, we're seeing gas prices really rise. You've probably talked about this on your show. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're up in the U.S. by about a buck over the last couple of years, just as the industry is moving to, you know, SUVs and, and trucks primarily. So will history repeat itself and will they find themselves with with vehicles that are too gas thirsty as prices get into the $3 range and maybe bump into 4 or should we believe what they tell us about this new generation of SUVs and they're more efficient and, and it's not going to bother consumers? So I think that's a big question mark. Hey, and do these numbers tell you anything about what's going on with the U.S. consumer at this point? Well, it shows that they're still out there. They haven't packed it in. Um, you know, retail sales are still uh, decent. Um, you know, this is a market of... Uh, 
almost 17 million sales. That That is a good number by anybody's measure, but they are heading down, and they've been heading down for a couple years now. So we're, yeah. we're not heading, uh, we're not climbing the ladder. We are, we're climbing down. All right. This is going to sound like a little bit of a random question, but I am curious because <laughs> this is your world. But I mean, if you could sit down with one of the CEOs from any global automaker, who would it be right now and what would you ask them? Oh, you know, I think I'd want to sit down with Sergio Marchionne from Fiat Chrysler because he is, uh, you know, he's about to retire. He's never been that guarded in what he says, but I mean, now all all bets are off, and uh, and he's been trying to form alliances and do deals. I just think he's a fascinating individual who is um, who's really open for business right now, who is in play, if you will, uh, and wants to. Um, do some big deal before he retires. I think he'd be a fascinating guy to talk with. Yeah, and anytime you've ever seen him in a, a live press conference, he's always entertaining. I've always had fun. Um, Keith Naughton, also fun to have you here. I've just seen a face I can't forget the time or place where we just met. She's just a girl for Facebook me. Facebook kicking off its F8 annual developer conference today already underway. Our Sarah Fryer is there, technology reporter at Bloomberg News from the San Jose Convention Center in San Jose, California. She joins us on the phone. Hey, first of all, just a little bit of background. What is this conference all about? Who's there? uh, And who do we typically hear from? Thousands of developers are here. And what developers do is they build tools off of Facebook's vast platform. Facebook has all this information on all these people, more than 2 billion people around the world. And they build all these easy ways for developers to tie it into their own apps, like for example, if you've ever used a dating app, maybe you log in with your Facebook account so that it quickly creates a profile for you. And um, speaking of dating, that is that is one of the things that Facebook announced they're going to start building. Um, so there's always a push and pull with this community. And lately there's been a lot of tension because Facebook needs to limit the information it gives developers after a privacy scandal. And so the company came out today with the intention of convincing those developers that it was very worth still building for Facebook. Help me out here, because we've been talking about this in the newsroom, a dating tool? I don't get it. How does this oh, fit yes. into the strategy? It feels so random not... and a little odd. Okay, so, so so keep in mind that as part of the backlash um in terms of Facebook being maybe not a good force in the world with all its fake news and Russian meddling in elections, um, Zuckerberg has said that the company's new goal is not connecting the world. It's actually bringing the world closer together. And so a very important aspect of bringing the world closer together is relationships. And so dating, which is something that Facebook hasn't really ventured into in the past, now becomes something that makes sense for the business model and the way it's going to integrate into Facebook is very different than what we've seen with Tinder or or uh, Bumble or any of those apps. It's actually going to be integrated into their events and group products. So say if you are part of the Facebook dating service um, and you're interested in going to an event and another single person who's using that service is interested in the event, Facebook will give you the option to connect with each other and go to the event together. And Zuckerberg, uh, funnily enough, on stage, he said that this is meant to encourage long-term relationships, hmm. not just hookups. Is it also kind of going after older people? Because I think there's a lot of older people using dating apps. 
I mean, potentially. And, and Facebook, you know, it's not it's not really the place where you you see a lot of high schoolers hanging out anymore. This is a very right. established company. It's like a 14-year-old company. And, and a lot of people's networks are all on Facebook, although Facebook says that they won't connect you with your friends through the dating service, only people you, you are not already connected to. Fascinating, fascinating. And it's interesting. We've seen, uh, you know, match uh, shares uh, take a big hit on concerns uh, or on the news that Facebook was doing this. Uh, Obviously, another dating app. Hey, what else has come out of this developers conference that you have found interesting? And what's kind of the mood there, especially since I feel like 2018 has been a tough one for Facebook? There were certainly a few moments where Facebook would announce something and people would sort of forget to clap and then clap later. It's kind of, it was kind of tense leading up to this conference. I have to tell you, I spoke with a bunch of developers who said that they um, felt like they're, they were being um, sort of scapegoats for Facebook's broader problems with privacy. Facebook made these, these promises by, by making um, all this data available to developers and now it's taking some of it away and developers feel like they shouldn't be punished for, bad actors when they're not bad actors. But of course, it's very difficult to police this broad set of you know thousands, in some cases, millions of people who are building things off of Facebook's platform. And so Facebook has to look now more cynically at how it's operated and figure out where the biggest vulnerabilities lie. So, But, but the, big, the big thrust of today's event was that Facebook, you know, it's not just Facebook that you can build on. You can build on Facebook Messenger. You can build on their Oculus VR headsets. You can build in Instagram's camera. There are all these different ways that developers can interact that don't rely on sort of the bread and butter blue app, as they call it internally. Hey, you know, I was looking, Sarah, uh, shares of Facebook. Let me just take a quick update here. They're just down a hair, so not seeing much uh, stock movement. Um, more to come from this event, or is it just this day, or do we see more stuff during the week? We have another another day of this event tomorrow. But I have to tell you, I'm not expecting anything huge. Second day is not usually a very newsy day. They usually talk about the future. I think shares might be down because we didn't really see anything that that was game-changing. Um, we saw a lot of little updates here and there, you know, a new a new tool for this, a new feature for that. But we didn't see anything that, that really blows the socks off of investors. And Facebook was going to announce a home speaker at this mm. event, they actually scrapped those plans, and we were, we broke that news uh, because they were worried about the privacy implications of launching that right now. Consumers don't really want to have a listening, always-on device in their home from Facebook right now. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Hey, listen. Great to get your perspective. Uh, thanks for. Uh, getting on the phone and and chatting with us about uh, the Facebook event. Sarah Fryer, technology reporter at Bloomberg News. Check her out on Twitter at Sarah Fryer. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
It is the time for the drive to the close on this Tuesday afternoon. Let's bring back uh, Aaron Cannon. He is co-founder, CEO at Clear Harbor Asset Management, more than $700 million in assets under management on the phone in New York. Um, Aaron, good to have you back with us. What's the first thing generally you want to know about when it comes to the news environment every morning? Well, that's a good question. I think we try to stay grounded in the fundamentals, Carol, but certainly the macro trends have been uh, worthy of of digestion as well, uh, whether it's monetary policy and how it impacts uh, the, the major fixed income asset classes or uh, geopolitical risk and how it may, may impact uh, volatility and investor returns going forward. So, um, you know, I'm a big believer that both the macro and the sort of fundamental uh, merge together is a good approach. But it's interesting, too, like I was looking at the market today earlier and we were down, uh, you know, more than 200 points. And I was like, yeah, OK, whatever, because I, <laughs> I've kind of I'm used to these swings and percentage wise, it's not like the market's falling on, und- you know, undone. And this is, you know, more typical. We keep saying this kind of volatility. This is more normal. Um, do you agree? Do the swings disturb you at all? They, they don't. And in fact, I think it, it's it's very healthy for the market to experience the type of volatility that it's experiencing. And it's warranted considering we're sort of coming off this unprecedented zero interest rate policy and, and we've normalized. And, and volatility is part of a normal market. In fact, if we didn't have it, the anticipated return of a major asset class like equities would be significantly lower. So in some ways, we ought to cheer the volatility. But I think what volatility also teaches us is that it can impact our emotions. And we sometimes tend to buy at tops and sell at bottoms when there's a lot of volatility. So being grounded in discipline is more important during this sort of new paradigm of ongoing volatility. And I should, I think we should expect it going forward. Do you think we are, though, or have hit a market top for the time being? Uh, a market top in volatility? No, no, I, no, no, I think, no, 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 no. In oh, terms of the, you know, the moves in the equity markets. Oh, no, I, I don't know where the, the equity market's going, but I think certainly um, if you look at history at the last, let's say, eight tightening cycles, and we're in the midst of one right now, price-to-earning multiples tend to contract, even if earnings continue to accelerate, which is exactly what we're seeing right now. Q1 earnings look like they're coming in in excess of 20% annualized rate. Maybe half of that's tax cuts, uh, the dollar, uh, buybacks. So maybe 10% is is true positive net earnings growth, and that's great, and we should celebrate it. But we have price-to-earnings forward multiples that have come down from, let's say, 18 times to 16 times. So uh, a lot of the fundamental data is strong. A lot of the headwinds are, are really coming from the, the tightening cycle and the competition, frankly, that equities have now with, with cash. You have Treasury bills y- yielding uh, 2 and a quarter percent We haven't seen that in 10 years. And so uh, you have higher uh, junk bond yields. You have higher investment-grade yields. So you have a lot of competition for equities right now. Um, but that doesn't necessarily bode, bode ill for the equity market. I think this is just sort of a, a mo- moment of, of clearing in the marketplace. And uh, but, but we should continue to expect some price-to-earnings multiple pressure. Yeah. Hey, you know, Aaron, when, you, when we talked with you, I guess it was early 2017, so over a year ago, you were concerned that some of the forecasts that were out there, uh, market forecasts, were too rosy and the outlooks um, were too rosy. How about today? Have people kind of come down to earth? Well, so it's interesting, right? Because um, our, our our view is that 
when you're in the midst of monetary transition, which is where we were when I said that, um, you can still have um, robust economic data uh, on the headlines. And I think that can sometimes mask the reality of where the market's headed. And so um, I think I was I was sort of waving the warning flag that mm. uh, we, we could be in the midst of, of a period where, you know, a lot of investors could sort of trick themselves into believing that positive earnings equals higher markets. And, <laughs> and during these sort of transitional phases in monetary policy, and this is an unprecedented one, that's just not always the case. So I think we're taking a breather here, and I think it's, it's a healthy thing for the market. And I keep saying there was a, a great Bloomberg story, I think it was, that you know pointed out this was, a, I don't know, a few weeks ago, maybe a, a couple of months ago, but just said that you know earnings – People can be very optimistic about the earnings outlook, and we've seen it just before the financial crisis, and then all of a sudden, they're not. Like, they can change dramatically, and we need to kind of remember that as we go through these earnings seasons. Absolutely. Um, So you're right, and and, uh, certainly – you know we're 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 seeing that uh now um earnings uh across certain sectors of the economy uh can can shift in in a matter of 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 quarters and if you look at Europe right now it's a great example where for the last several quarters we've witnessed very strong manufacturing data coming out of these companies and coming out of the the largest economy in Germany and that that shifted quite dramatically over over the last couple of data points now the question is whether or not this is a new trend or whether or not well they had a difficult winter uh this is just a, a temporary blip and an and an upward sloping uh, economic chart, and I think there's uh, there's sort of a wait and see attitude in a lot of this, for sure, Carol. Um, what kind of money flows are you guys seeing, Aaron? Is there money coming in? People wanting to commit to, especially when you see some pullbacks, certainly on the equity side or in some other asset classes. Just got about thirty five seconds left. Yeah, I mean, I think where there's volatility, uh, active management, and we do both active and passive, uh, we're seeing opportunities to to dip into the market. We're also seeing interest in uh, sustainable investing, ESG Mm. investing, and we're seeing a lot of clients, both retail and institutional, that are very interested in that area. A lot of the data suggests that returns do not need to be sacrificed if you you, uh, also have an interest in sustainability. Yeah, we definitely are seeing that trend more and more. It's not just, you know, maybe feeling good about your investments, but you actually can see that returns. Um, Aaron, thank you. Aaron Kennan, co-founder, chief executive officer, Clear Harbor Asset Management on the phone in New York, roughly $700 million in assets under management. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.